in many cases, the new script blows the lid off of what's possible. And the message here is extremely optimistic, but it does require some pretty big shifts in how we see these relationships. And again, all of which are ultimately part of not just one system, multiple overlapping kinds of systems within which we live and work and think and plan for the future. Welcome to Ecosystems for Change, where we co-author the playbook on transforming communities by amplifying the impact of changemakers around us. Whether you are an entrepreneur or otherwise changemaker yourself, a citizen who loves their community with a passion and wants to see it thrive, whether you are a mentor, investor, support organization, advisor, philanthropic funder, economic developer, or policymaker, Learn the practical tools and proven tactics of ecosystem builders from all around the world to better support the dreamers, doers, tinkerers, and makers in your community by taking a systems approach to social change. I'm your host, Annika Horn. In today's episode, I'm catching up with April Rennie in Portland, Oregon. When I started planning season two to talk about the slow and complex nature of ecosystem building, I knew I needed some insights from practitioners in the field. April wrote a book called Flux, Eight Superpowers for Thriving in Constant Change, and already on page three, I realized that this book was exactly what every systems thinker and doer needs to not only keep their head above water, but to actually thrive in the work that we do. And as you'll see, April absolutely practices what she preaches. Enjoy! April, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been just a magic collision of so many things that have happened over the last weeks and months. So I'm really, really glad that you are here. The first question I like to ask everybody who comes on this show is, if I were to come to your ecosystem, where would you take me? So I'm, uh, my ecosystem is all about change and uncertainty and this world in flux. And one of the things I've enjoyed most about this journey and about ecosystem in which I am immersed is all of the different cultural connotations about change, beliefs about change, concepts, rituals, traditions, words, ways of speaking and being and thinking and working and all around change. And I would take you on a global tour to these many different cultures, most of which, you know, they're not in touch with each other, so to speak, but there's this tapestry that's being woven that would be, oh my gosh, dreamy in so many different ways to take you on a global tour of different cultural concepts around change. I love it. And I got to say, so one of the ways I found out about you was that your book Flux was recommended to me by Cecilia Wessinger through our mutual friend, Rick Terosi who's been so generous with sharing really great resources. And I feel that reading your book, you're taking us on that journey, on the page. But we're going to so many different places. And your view has really been informed by so many different cultures and personal adventures you've gone on that this is a, a perfect trip that I would like to come on. That's fantastic. April, you are a, a futurist. You have more awards that I could say in a single breath. And you're crazy about handstands. What is up with the handstands? <laughs> so, well, 
Thank you for that. Just the the generous, warm introduction and hooray for Rick and Cecilia. And I didn't know these small world connections. Um, handstands. So on the one hand, I can talk about handstands are my upside down perspective on the world. I also learned later in life that they're connected across the board with mental acuity, longevity, like doing any kind of inversion, whether it's a headstand, a handstand, just reaching down to touch your toes, that is what we all need to be doing more of. It's good to get blood rushing to your head. But the practical side of it is um, I grew up doing gymnastics. I did learn to do handstands early, but then all of my friends that I was doing handstands with way back when stopped doing them. And for some reason, I kept it up and then it became a thing. And now it's my sort of signature. But um, it's become just a real joy. I Basically, I do handstands when I travel different places around the world and uh, have photographs of this completely random motley crew of places and people. And um, <laughs> it's become a wonderful icebreaker because obviously, if I'm doing a handstand, I can't be taking that picture. So what it means is that I have befriended somebody locally and convinced them that I'm going to go over here by this monument or whatever it is, wherever I am. <laughs> Do a handstand and I need you to photograph it. And they're like, what? And then it turns into this wonderful adventure and it's something I'm just really proud of it at this point. It's not, it's nothing fancy, um, but it's become sort of like a catalog of places I've been around the world and people that I've met along the way. And again, bringing an upside down perspective to all of it. I think that is fantastic. Some people have a signature piece of clothing they wear and you have a signature movement. Great. Yes. And talent shows are never a problem. If I need a party <laughs> piece, I'm like, oh, right. Okay. <laughs> um, before we dive into today's conversation, I first need to gush a little bit and just share why I am so excited about the work you're doing and the book you've written. When I first set out, to think about this season that is all around the very slow and complex nature of the work that we do as ecosystem builders and as change makers in our communities, my main concern was how in the world am I going to make this tangible? And even worse, how can we teach and help ecosystem builders understand what this looks like in their day-to-day -day life? How do you become a practitioner of thinking in uncertainty or thinking in complex adaptive systems and managing that uncertainty on the day-to-day. -day. And then this book landed in my lap and I started reading and highlighting and taking notes and thought, oh my God, I think April has been in my head this whole time and she knew I was going to launch this podcast. <laughs> and she wrote it just so that I can then grab it, bring her on the show, and then hopefully send out hundreds and thousands of copies to changemakers all around the world. Because I really believe that everyone who works in systems change and knows how hard it is and how long it takes needs to read this book, learn all of the eight superpowers and start practicing them yesterday. So thank you. The timing of this has been so serendipitous and I'm so excited to dive deeper into what you've written about and what you're working on. Well, thank you. And again, it's funny. I, I know you, but I did not know this kind of history. And it just brings me alive because I do think I knew that I had to – it's interesting. There's this sense of – I spent many years actively resisting writing a book because I didn't want to write a book that other people thought I needed to write, a kind of tick the box. 
And then there came this point where all of a sudden I felt this inner shift and it was like, wow, this book is coming out of me. I have to write it. But I didn't know the world it was going to land into. I didn't know how it was going to be received by others. And I had to, we'll come back to this in a little bit, I had to let go of so many different expectations. So to hear your story makes me go, that's exactly why I needed to do what I needed to do too. So thank you. I love when the universe lets us know that it's listening and watching. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So one of the many side effects of reading your book recently has been that in just day-to-day conversations with people and with people on this podcast, I've just started talking about the old script and the new script and the flux mindset (laughs) as if everybody knows what that is. I think because the way you wrote it made it so obvious that I felt more like you were giving me language to talk about something that I'd been grappling with and I didn't know how to talk about it. For all of those who have not read the book yet, I want to talk about the old script first. Under the old script, what is wrong with how we're trying to solve problems and go through the world and and be in our communities? Great question. <laughs> and um, let's go back. So this idea of a script, what is a script? And the way that I like to describe our scripts is that these are the norms and narratives and stories by which we live our lives. So you have a script and I have a script and everyone has a script. Everyone's script is different because we all have unique life experiences. But for the most part, our scripts are really clear. And your script, my script, anyone's script, describes the world you expect to live in, your place in it, and how we define things like success and the path forward, and what really matters, and what doesn't matter, and so on and so forth. And so it includes the stories that we tell about change. So when we think about our scripts, again, one of the beautiful things, I am not saying that script A is good and script B is bad. I am not saying do this, don't do that. I'm saying everyone has one. Every culture has one. It's things we've been taught and socialized and so forth. And the fact is, Every single script in some way, shape, or form is outdated for the world that we live in. And just for some examples, I think a lot of people, myself included, the script that I was taught was like, my career is a path that I'm going to pursue and I should climb a ladder and success is at the top of that ladder. That's just one example. And again, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying it's a script. I was taught that I shouldn't trust strangers. I was taught that I actually shouldn't trust anyone, more or less. I was taught that I needed to meet expectations that were set by others and that would define my value to society. I was taught that more is better. If I can have one house, have two. If I can have one sweater, have ten. More And more, not just stuff, but that more was inherently better. Again, I'm not saying it is or isn't. I'm just saying it's a script, right? The challenge that we face... so. If you're listening in, like reflect on what is your script, right? Just big picture. And sometimes people talk about this as the operating system that's in your mind. So what's your OS? (laughs) And it runs really deep and it often brings up stuff that makes people uncomfortable, but just kind of write it down. The challenge that we face today is that more and more people are waking up to the reality, the script that they've been living by 
often unconsciously. But the world that they were taught that they should expect to live in, and if they did X, then Y would happen. And if they played by the rules, then they'd get here. And all it plays in so many different ways, individually, organizationally, societally. We're looking at a situation in which the world that we were taught to expect that we would live in, and if we did all the right things, we would get this particular outcome, doesn't align much at all with the world as it is today. And so there's this reckoning where a lot of people are saying, God, we have got to redesign, rethink, etc. But that also involves writing a new script. And the way that I frame it, and it's in the book, is it's a script that is fit for a world in flux. Because a lot of the old script has an implicit assumption that the world is controllable, predictable, engineerable by humans. And not only is that a very kind of elitist, privileged, aloof way to look at things in terms of the interconnectedness of of humans and and other species. But I hate to break it to any of us, we've never been able to control the future. We've never been able to engineer change beyond, I mean, ad hoc, individual kinds of change here and there, yes. But in terms of the big picture and where society is headed, etc., no, and we're we're just waking up to this reality, which has always been there. But I think and this is where, you know, my book was not written about COVID or 2020 or 2021 or 2022, but these were incredible sort of validation and acceleration of these ideas. The book was written about this longer, I think, more timeless and universal arc of humans' relationships to change and just how poorly fit we are for a world in flux. And yet, how much that is our reality. And so there's this huge challenge, but also this huge opportunity in reshaping how we think about it, talk about it, and ultimately relate to change and uncertainty. There is so much to unpack there, (laughs) which I love. April, tell us about why it is so hard for us to accept that we don't have control and to live with much more ambiguity. Because as you said, this is the way it's always been. I don't know where we got this illusion of control over systems, societies, communities, Mother Earth. How did we ever come up with this idea that we could control? And why are we having, I think especially in the Western world, such a hard time understanding that this is not how life works for any of us? Well, I think there are lots of different reasons why it came up, why it has emerged like this. And it's funny, I would use the word emerge. I want to bracket and place over to the side for us to come back to later. Along with the question you just asked, I would say, why is it that the concept and the value of emergence, emergent systems, emergent thinking, why has that been kind of forgotten slash suffocated slash just like not in the picture because those are kind of two sides two sides of the same coin right why is it that we've wanted to fit everything into a neat tidy box and tie it up with a bow and like here's your and it could be here's your system but like here's the world (laughs) and yet anything that's more fluid and more emergent has been seen as um everything from scary to underdeveloped 
too nonsensical. And we can look at this from the perspective of history, neuroscience, culture, colonialism, capitalism, consumerism. The list goes on and on. We pull on any one of those threads and some piece of the answer starts to come out. I think ultimately, if we go back in human history, I mean, obviously, there's nothing new about change. It's like older than we are. I always like to remind people, like, the only reason you and I are here because something changed, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, if we go back to like early human history days, we can imagine that change, some kinds of change, were threatening, could kill you. Okay, got that. But a lot of change, like the status quo, just isn't the norm. And what's happened over time, I should have also mentioned one of the biggest factors today is the role of technology. Mm-hmm. And both as a tool or a device that can lead us to believe we can control something, whereas it's like, yeah, my app can help me get from point A to point B. This app can help me do a particular function. But when change really hits, the more reliant on technology you are, the harder you find it often is to navigate change because you've deluded yourself to think that this device has the answer. The device does not have the answer. Humans are going to have to find those answers from within or from within nature and our surroundings. But back to the, not cave people, but sort of that era, you had these changes and then you continued on and it's as though, though the different parts of our brain, particularly the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems, the parasympathetic nervous system got hijacked. And usually those work in tandem. And one is sympathetic is fight, flight, freeze. Parasympathetic is sort of rest and digest. And and they deal with different kinds of changes well too. But what ended up happening is unlike years, millennia ago, when you did need to be aware of a tiger that was going to chase you down perhaps. Now, every change is perceived often as a tiger that's chasing you, even though it's not at all. Just more broadly, and this is a, it's a parallel, a way that I like to frame change in today's world. We think about change, we talk about it, it's one word, right? And like, change. Change is actually much more than just, like, there are lots of different kinds of change. And I meet people every day who are like, wait, I love change. I'm a change junkie. And I'm always like, hold on a minute. What kind of change do you mean here? And the way that I like to phrase it is that our relationships to change and change itself, they're really messy. They're really complicated. And most humans historically and definitely today, we love changes we can control. We love changes we can opt into. So that might be a new adventure or a new job or a new relationship or a new haircut, right? We love those kinds of changes. But it's the changes we can't control that throw us sideways. The ones that blindside us, the ones that throw our plans upside down, you name it. And that goes back again. We've always had those kinds of changes. Historically, I think we were actually much better at dealing with many of those. But the forces of technology, the forces of consumerism, consumer mass marketing, 
the forces mm-hmm. of ego, and I, we can come back to this later, but yin and yang and, you know, a little bit more yin energy, male energy in particularly the leadership world. And we've developed these complete delusions that we can control. And yet look at the last two years. No. And, you know, that's just one small example of the kinds of changes we're going to be facing more of moving forward. Based on that, what is a better way of doing it? What is the new script and how can we be effective in moving in a world of ambiguity, uncertainty, and constant change? Yeah. So the trillion dollar megawatt question, I Mm -hmm. suppose. But I'm so glad you're here to answer it. I'm, you know. If only, but I will give it my best shot. And this does come with, you know, nearly 30 years of steeping myself in change and uncertainty and how do individuals deal with this and organizations and cultures and, ah. Uh, um, if we go back, just zoom out for a minute and think about the old script very much construed around this idea that humans can control and predict and, you know, are sort of this super, like, that we are the best of all species kind of thing, but also that the world is neat and orderly and tidy and predictable and that it, the world can be tied up in a neat little bow. That's the old script. The new script is very much what do those narratives, those norms, those stories look like that are fit for a world in flux? So a world in which not just constant change and lots of different kinds of change, but also a faster pace of change, which we can come back to because those are very different things, change and pace of change. What does that script look like? Now, first and foremost, and this is more on the individual level, a lot of times people get really interested in this notion that in many cases, your script, the old script in your case, is going to be a script that someone else wrote for you, for you to sort of follow climb the corporate ladder and be successful. Like that may or may not be what you believe, but that's what someone else has told you matters. Study hard, get good grades, get a good job, do said job, climb ladder, retire. That may be your script, but that's usually a script someone else has told you. And then you wake up and go, wait, there's more than one way to create a career and so on. So I bring this up because first and foremost, the new script is a script that you author yourself that describes your life journey, your life narrative, and even thinks about relationships between humans and with other species and with the planet in a much more interconnected, systemic way. But to be clear, there isn't one script, just as there wasn't one old script. Everyone, you know, everyone has their own unique script. But Each and every new script, whoever you are writing your own, it needs to be fit for a world in flux, a world in which there is more uncertainty, more instability, more unknowns, and that that's not a bad thing in and of itself. I mean, it's hard to say it's good or bad. It it just is. But as such, how we relate, how we show up for life for ourselves, for other people at work and at home, in our relationships, in the world, like how we show up is what's different. What we expect and assume about what's possible is different. And again, not better or worse, in many cases, the new script 
blows the lid off of what's possible. And the message here is extremely optimistic, um, but it does require some pretty big shifts in how we see these relationships. And again, all of which are ultimately part of not just one system, multiple overlapping kinds of systems within which we live and work and think and plan for the future. Two things I really want to highlight here are, number one, by studying and researching and talking to others about complex adaptive systems, that is what a lot of this has boiled down to. If you can't change the system, you can only change what you have an influence over and ultimately that's you. So it sounds like a bumper sticker, but systems change starts with you. That is really the only thing you have an influence over. And that leads me to my second point. This is why I love your book so much. It's not just inspiration. Here's how April sees the world, which is great. Like that alone would have been a fantastic book. But your book is explanation, inspiration, and here's how to actually implement that. I love that workbook aspect of pause here, take pen and paper. Here are six questions I really want you to think about. Here's a list I want you to write. Now go back and look through that list. I love how you turned this book into not just a manifesto for how we can show up for our communities and drive change, but really giving us the tools to rewire our own script. So it's really that framework and we can each pick and choose where we want to start. Because as you say in the book, some superpowers some of us already have and, and others we need to work on. I would go as far as to say that everybody has makes of what they're already good at and whatnot. So I think your book is super, super powerful and influential in that way, which is why I'm so thrilled Goodness. I found it when I did. What you just said, one, thank you. And two, like multiple light bulbs or sparks flew in my head where I was like, oh, wait, I want to pick up that and pick up that. And a couple I'll just take in turn that I love that you use the term manifesto because get this and the, the individual piece as well, where I had early readers of parts of the book and uh, overall it was encouraging feedback, but I had people say, oh my gosh, you need sort of like the manifesto. This needs to be the manifesto for like society, right? And I was like, ooh. Um, and my publisher also was like, yes, however, we cannot make this a 1,000 page book because no one will read that. But there was always this, and I don't want to call it a struggle, it was a healthy struggle. But when we think about flux, as I like to say these days, give me a topic and let's talk about how it's in flux, right? Personal changes, professional changes, organizational changes, societal changes, system changes. I mean, my daily schedule is in flux and climate is in flux. Those are very different audiences we're speaking to, points we're trying to make. But it became very clear. And so we, we, we wrestled with this for a long time of how far can we stretch it in this one book. And um, ultimately, we did decide there is, I mean, there's a series of books here, probably one that's leadership in flux, organizations in flux. Um, there may be the systemic piece. But if I think, I've always thought about this as kind of concentric circles. And if with the individual and then you sort of cascade from different kinds of relationships and presence in the world. And it was really clear to me early on, and this also relates to the, the workbook aspect. If you can't not only 
if you can't make this directly applicable to an individual in their own life and the things that they're struggling with and the dreams that they have and so forth, it's very hard to translate that into some kind of societal movement or 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 and in this case I say societal manifesto. But it can be a manifesto for your own life. And that then it cascades and flows from there. And so um I do think you can always improve on books, I suppose, after the fact, but we struck a good balance between toggling in, in and out, zooming in and zooming out. This is you, but but and in particular with regards to change and uncertainty and the future. As we think about there is no one future. It is not about the future. There are many different possible futures that could play out right now and every day. And no one knows exactly which one it's going to be. And it's going to continue to change each day, right? But back to an earlier question you asked too about like, why do we have so much, why is it so hard for us often? But also for me, fundamentally, are we approaching change from a place of hope or fear? That is just this and that's mindset. That's not strategy. That is all about our relationship to change from the inside out. And the ability to see a future in which one has a place in it, that is so important. And that is, I think, in many ways, the difference between hope and fear. If we're projecting any kind of future, and I just don't see a place for myself in it. it. It's a future that doesn't seem to have included me or acknowledged me. I'm going to get much more anxious, much more fearful faster, but also I'm going to do everything I can to resist the change that's coming. And that's where we get in our own way. And I think this is one of those kind of fractal points too. If we want to talk about this at the individual level, if we want to talk about this at the system change level, that one point, that one nugget that we're all wrestling with, I think it all, in some way, shape, or form, it all tends to boil down to that at some point um, if we keep, again, pulling on the thread or peeling back the layers. And I want to acknowledge that being afraid in times like these is not unusual. It's not unexpected. I think any sort of citizen of the world who's been watching the news, for better or worse, but as we talk, there are so many global challenges that make us fearful for us or for our children, for the planet, for communities that are in a different part of the world facing war or droughts or pollution or civil unrest. I mean, it's normal to be afraid. And if we are going to be effective and active agents of change, we can't let that fear stop us. And that's why I think these eight superpowers for thriving and constant change are a pathway forward that allows us to move somewhat confidently with a positive outlook into the future and help create the very version of the future that I want to see for myself and my children, that you want to see for your communities and that each of us can drive towards. Yeah. There's um, another book that was written actually in 1951, but could have been written today. It's called The Wisdom of Insecurity, Lessons for an Age of Anxiety. And I am reading, it's by Alan Watts, who is an early bridge between Eastern and Western um, philosophies and spiritualities. And um, it's interesting. It's a fantastic read. So if you like Flux and want to go, it's more on the meta philosophical side of things. 
But it just continues to bring home the point that so much of modern humankind, um, and again, I'll say largely in the West, but there's some of it, it's global. This sense of life is about maximize, maximize pleasure, minimize pain. Okay. That's not the experience of life. A, it's impossible to do. So good luck with that. And the more you follow that, the more miserable you actually make yourself, which I find very ironic. But also the challenging parts, the, even the pain often, it is where the real growth happens. And no kind of growth is necessarily inherently unequivocally easy. And without understanding what sadness, grief, anxiety, all these, quote, negative feelings are, we don't actually understand what happiness is or joy is. And I've come to even appreciate, I cherish the moments that I am scared beyond belief, that I'm sad in the in the pit of my very being. I don't want to stay there forever, but that's the part that keeps us human. That's the part that we work through it and we come out and we're actually stronger, wiser, etc. And I know that's, you know, some of what I'm saying might sound trite or it's age-old wisdom, but I find we can't reiterate that enough, particularly today. There is something about this aggressive optimism that I think we have worshipped too much over the last few years that don't let it get you down, keep your chin up, come on, just push through, positive all the way, rah, 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 which I think has hurt us more than it has helped us. Um, what can each of us do to think and act effectively in this culture, in this world of constant change? How might we think about showing up and making a difference and not getting overwhelmed? Yeah, so I have to kind of back up half a degree. It's a great question. Um, but one of the things that I have found both in writing the book and in researching over many years, but also since the book has been out, is just how little time and oxygen and effort, so to speak, we give to thinking about and understanding our relationships to change, right? What kinds of changes delight you? What kinds of changes terrify you? What kinds of changes unravel you? Everyone's different. And part of this is related to our scripts, but just More generally, one thing that's clear is that everyone's relationship to change can improve in some way. Now, not necessarily in the same ways, but there's just so much room for improvement. And I have yet to meet anyone in the world that's like, change, like every kind of change, got it, tick, move on, right? No one, no one has, if, if you find that person, please send them my way because, you know, Never mind zebras and unicorns. Like they are a mythical figure that I haven't found a human like that yet. Yep. So the first thing that we can do is simply better understand our relationship to change. And I call this like the flux baseline. Like before we know where we're heading, we kind of want to know where we are. And very few people when it comes to this relationship to change, very few people have done that kind of orientation. So that's the first step. And I'm sorry, it doesn't mean that that's the solution. That's the first step. But it's something everyone can do. It's something that's going to serve you well from this day forward. And it's going to lead each person on their kind of 
customized journey through flux, so to speak, which then the book is designed with the questions and reflection and all that. But that's, you know, it's not that there's one thing we must all do in the outside world. The first step is doing a bit more of that inner work to get it, to get clear on where are you on this spectrum, so to speak, of how you think about and relate to change and where your relationship to change may need a little improvement. And then back to your point, depending on the ways in which you need some help, that flows directly into certain of the superpowers. Hi, friends. I'm trying out something new for season three, and I hope you'll join us. On April 14, 2022, I'll be hosting our first community conversation called Burn Both Ends. I want to invite you, the listeners, to help co-create this show, and I would really love your input. Burn Both Ends is going to be a conversation about the emotional and mental toll of driving social change in our communities. What does it mean to take care of ourselves? What's getting in the way? How can we mitigate the effects of long stretches of incremental progress? And when do we need to step away? What does a sustainable lifestyle mean for purpose-driven community champions? At Burn Both Ends, you are invited to share your personal experiences and help me phrase the big hard questions. In season three, I will set out to find us some answers. Come and co-create the next season of Ecosystems for Change. You'll find the link in the show notes. And now, back to the show. I feel like we could fill an entire episode of the show just talking about the superpowers. And I'm going to urge everybody to instead go buy the book, buy the book for your friends and family and neighbors and everyone you know, so they can really start digging into this and we can create this kind of grassroots change. In this conversation, however, April, there were two superpowers that to me really stood out as I was thinking about how can we better equip ecosystem builders with some superpowers and tools to do their work effectively and without losing themselves in the process, which I've seen a lot. And I think your book is great guidance on that front. So two superpowers I specifically want to talk a little bit more about is see what's invisible and start with trust. Especially in season one of this show, I think almost every conversation boiled down to the fact that community moves at the speed of trust. And if you don't have trust, you can't move forward and nothing will happen. So if we start with this one, what is that superpower about? How can we wrap our minds around start with trust? Often this comes up in terms of like, so what's your favorite superpower? I'm always like, you don't answer that question. It's like, what's your favorite kid? Um, and I don't have a favorite, but I often will say that the superpower of starting with trust, it's like the super superpower. When it comes to navigating change well, nothing matters more than trust. And even the other seven superpowers, you, you end up coming back to the, yep, yep, and that's going to hinge on trust. And yep, like it's just this overlapping interweave. Trust is the glue that holds teams and cultures and communities together. It's the connective tissue. It's what helps us, you know, go the extra mile, have loyalty, belief in something um, and being part of a sense of belonging in something greater than ourselves. Now, kind of like change, it's not just um, one thing, nor is trust. We talk about trust as if it's this one thing, it's one word. 
trust is both cognitive and emotional. So on the one hand, cognitive trust means trusting that people are reliable and dependable. You know, they'll do what they say they will, right? On the other hand, emotional trust is trusting that people care about and will look out for one another. Those are different kinds of trust. And so I think about this particularly in the business setting, organizational setting. I think of trust as kind of like operational trust, right? You keep the trains running on time. You have secure systems. You do high-quality work, right? While emotional trust is all about organizational culture, right? Do you have psychological safety? Can you and your colleagues show up fully as yourselves, right? Can you admit mistakes? Things like that. That's an emotional trust. Trust plays out everywhere, right? It's, and including it's in surprising ways. So you might know somebody who like consistently lies, right? Like that's awful that they're a liar, but you can kind of trust that they're going to lie. So again, trust is not one thing. And again, just like change, this goes back to what is your script around trust? What is your relationship to trust? Like, where does it come from? I often ask people, do you believe that the average person can be trusted? Why or why not? What influences your response? When you meet somebody new, do you tend to assume that everyone is untrustworthy until they do something positive to earn your trust? Or do you assume that people are trustworthy until they do something foolish to fall out of your trust? And again, I like to say, both of these are totally legitimate approaches, right? I'm not judging whether one's good and one's bad. But as we'll see, like, things go better when you start with trust. Now, do you trust yourself? And these are all, and I'm just throwing these questions out because that's what we have to grapple with here. And the key and kind of where I come back in the chapter and just in general is that we are living in a world, in a system that has been designed, and again, consciously, unconsciously, has been designed with the assumption, the sort of default setting that the average individual cannot and should not be trusted. And again, this is playing out in organizations left, right, and center, public sector, private sector, for-profit, non-profit, big, small, you name it. And yet, what have we just done? We've just cut ourselves off from one another right when we might have helped one another most. And so part of what starting with trust means is a huge redesign on many different levels. But this is where I love talking about the system change component and potential of this, because the fact remains that if we were to redesign Break again, break that default setting and reset it to the average individual is trustworthy. And to be clear, I do not mean blind trust. I do not mean naive trust. I mean the average individual. We would design a very different kind of system, different kind of world, and one that actually sees much more the full humanity, but also would be unlocking all kinds of abundance and value and goodness in humans that right now is stifled because we've basically stamped it all out because the assumption is mistrust. One of my first experiences as an ecosystem builder was 
being empowered by people who didn't know me because they simply trusted me, not because I had done something to earn that trust, because they assumed I had the best of intentions. And that put the wind under my wings and was incredibly powerful. Yeah. The way I will often phrase this too is when change really hits, if I'm allowed to say like when the shit really hits the fan, who do you turn to? When change really hits, who do you turn to? I'm going to wager that you turn to your trusted relationships. I'm also going to wager that if you don't have many such relationships, that not only are you in a world of hurt and pain far greater, but also that you trust other people less. And this becomes this sort of downward vicious cycle, right? And if you think about what what kind of trust are we talking about, and like trust in another person, trust that the future is going to play out some way that's going to have a place for me. Back to what I was saying earlier, right? And you think about this and it's like no one navigates change well alone in a silo or on an island. Just doesn't work that way. We have to be – the way that we can tra- we can navigate uncertainty confidently is knowing that we're not alone in this knowing that we're on this journey together with others. And that requires, fundamental to that is being able to trust those other people that you're on that journey with. The second superpower that I think is especially powerful for ecosystem builders is seeing what's invisible. For someone to be able to step out of their script and question what they, the social norms, the culture that they have come to take for granted and see what else is out there, opens us up to be an advocate, not just for the people that we surround ourselves with, but really seeing a wider picture. Who are the other people that have been invisible to me so far? How can we implement or hone that superpower as we move through the world as agents of change? Yeah, that's a great way to phrase the question because it is true that if we want to learn how to see what's invisible we have to choose to see it. So and what I mean by that is, again, go back to our scripts, right? As children, we're often taught to look straight ahead and focus, right? We try to teach children focus and discipline and like, you know, whether it's a destination or a goal or an achievement, speaking of careers, as young adults, we're often expected to track into careers in one domain, Right? As adults, though, we often track into social circles that keep us inside our comfort zones, right? So in each of these cases, some things are seen and the rest is not. So learning to see what's invisible means learning about those things that have been hidden from you. And sometimes it's consciously, sometimes it's often it's unconsciously. But what happens when you learn about people or beliefs or ways of living and being and working that are different than your own? What happens when you venture off the beaten path, right? These things are all invisible unless you learn and choose to see them. So the way you start is by doing exactly those things, learning about people, organizations, beliefs, ways of being that are different from your own, venturing off the beaten path, going outside your comfort zone, right? And so for me, and this is like as a futurist and working with organizations and whatnot, like I focus on what those none of us often sees. And again, this isn't a one size fits all this is this is a universal phenomenon in that every single culture every single organization every single person has been trained or taught 
to see some things and to not see the rest, right? And we're, then we're taught to see what matters, right? And what matters varies by culture, varies by organization. But in each case, we see what matters. We don't see the rest. But as a result, no one sees the full picture. So a lot of this, it, and again, you start seeing how the superpowers bleed together because we talk about something like get lost, another of the superpowers. And uh, that's all about stretching beyond your comfort zone. But seeing what's invisible, I can say, and here it's like more figuratively, you could imagine just having all kinds of new adventures and experiences and like newness thrown at you, and you could still choose to not see it. So there, there is implicit in this a willingness and a belief that you're not seeing the full picture because no one is, and a desire to learn more about that because, and going back, this is like the, the crux of flux, so to speak. Um, the key is that when change hits, if we're not seeing the full picture, then we, we do have blind spots. We're not seeing the full range of what's possible. So when change hits these blind spots and this sort of narrow focus, it actually can wreak havoc because not only can it disorient us and confuse us, but it often keeps us from seeing the full suite of solutions, ideas, concepts, possibilities to make our way forward. So for me, this is all about how we navigate change and seeing what's invisible. When change hits, we have to be able to learn how to see what's invisible because that's often where the insights for how we move forward are to be found. And I think it is not that I want to ask of everyone to like completely become, you know, black belt masters of these superpowers. But to me, even being willing to accept and embrace the fact that we do not know everything, that things are invisible, even just that shift of mindset to say, you know what? I probably don't know what it's like to be an immigrant in my community or what it's like to try to start a nonprofit when you're LGBTQIA or what it's like to try to do really anything when you are not who I am. So coming out of the being willing to just acknowledge the fact is such an important first step. And sometimes when I meet more traditional economic developers or people who insist sometimes when I meet people who insist that they've always done things this way I want to grab them by the shoulders and shake them and just open their eyes to what is invisible not to say that I've mastered this skill but at least I have seen the value that comes with being willing to see what's invisible and two quick things on this one is that it's funny because people are like wait it's invisible it's like it's always been there and I'm always like yes To be clear, because there's a tension sometimes with invisibility of like, what, you just didn't see me? It's like, no. And a lot of this comes up with regards to systems, but with, with, with regards to systemic, systemic injustice, systemic distortions, systemic inequalities. It's like those inequalities have been glaringly visible for a very long time if you chose to see them. But so many people in so many ways didn't want to see them, were actively taught not to see them. So, I, but I want to honor that for some people in every setting in which this could happen, for some people, it's glaringly visible. And it's like, what the hell do you guys not see, right? And yet, go back to the scripts. A lot of the scripts didn't have place for that. Like we were going to tell the squeaky clean story. We were not going to tell the story that if you actually took time to really see, 
It was very visible. So just to acknowledge that, and also back to the, um, you know, most, the, the first half, more than 15 years of my career was spent in global development. But it was spent often, if you will, like in the trenches, in the fields, not in some office in, with all due respect, Washington, D.C. or Geneva, you know, not saying, here's how we do it. It was actually spent in developing countries, in frontier markets, amongst, in particular, the economically active poor. And that changed a lot of my beliefs. And there is this sense that um, when I say stretch beyond your comfort zone and and learn about other cultures, ways of life, realities, no one can have, I can't have your experience, you can't have my experience. And I'm not talking about anything in regards to any sort of appropriation whatsoever. And so coming as close as we can, though, to standing in the shoes of one another exposing yourself to things that often expose uncomfortable truths, often expose things that difficult conversations, you know, all of that. Those are all steps that everyone can be taking right now without diminishing that each individual's experience is unique to them. And so I'm not trying to, we're not trying to co-opt anything. We're not trying to gloss over anything. There are all kinds of ways. So I don't know what it's like to establish a nonprofit as an LGBTQ woman. I don't have that lived experience, but it doesn't mean that I can't learn the realities, the nuances, the details, the the difficulties of what that's like, which then can inform my work as an ally, as someone who's adjacent to that, as someone who can still help move the goals of that entire community forward. I just want to stay on the microphone with you for another two weeks and unfold all of these conversations. Um, this is wonderful. A, Thank you, April. We can do an encore. We can do a sequel. We can do whatever. I would love that. No, pre- no pressure at all, but it, the feelings are mutual. April, as you grapple with a lot of those big systemic questions, injustices, all the things that you are now willing to see, how do you make sure you don't get overwhelmed? and depressed and just start to stay in bed all day and eat chocolate. I have to give a big caveat here um, because one of the things that has happened often is people are like, oh, you wrote a book about flux and these flux superpowers. You must have mastered them all. And I'm like, wait a minute. I'm like exhibit A for these. So just because I wrote a book about it doesn't mean that I am somehow like have this enlightenment that others can only seek to have. I'm on this journey too. Absolutely. One thing I can say is that my flux superpowers are way stronger than they were five years ago or 10 years ago. And I also know that I have work still to do. I hope to continue to strengthen them a little bit every single day for the rest of my life. So that's the first thing that I kind of like to remind everybody of, including myself, which is every single day is an opportunity to improve. And not every day is great. And yeah, I actually stay in bed and eat chocolate sometimes too. Like, and you know when to do that. But I think for me, and this is more, when I find myself doubting, when I find myself honestly slipping into aspects of the old script, I go, is this really what I believe? Is this really how I want my future to play out? Is this really, you know what the world needs. And you come back and you say, how can I apply that flex superpower today? Now, at the moment, 
I'm dealing one, one of the flux superpowers that we haven't mentioned yet. The first one actually is called run slower, which says that in a world with an ever faster pace of change, that your key to success and sustainability and well-being is to slow your own pace. And basically looking at anxiety and burnout and exhaustion and manicness and also how do we show up fully for one another? How do we make our best decisions? How do we see new things? Like all of those things require that you slow down enough to see what's actually happening. Cue see what's invisible as well. That I bring this up because like right now I'm struggling a lot with running slower because I want to launch my book in all these different languages and I have these requests and I have, you know, I'm like, wait a minute. And then I'm finding every single day learning how going, and I don't want to just say go back to the book, but like there are, there are nuggets in there where I'm like, oh, I am not following my own advice here. And if I did, I would be replenishing myself before I go and exhaust myself. And so I keep dipping back in, but recognizing that I'm much better at running slower now than I was a year ago. But I still hope to be better, even, you know, more new and improved a year from now, 10 years from now, etc. So flux is not a one and done, tick the box, move on. That's not change. That's not reality. As soon as we think we've mastered something, I can assure you another kind of change is going to, you know, broadside us and here we go again. But if we think about a flux mindset and these superpowers, they're like mental muscles. And just like your physical muscles, you have to train them and groove them and practice. And that's what I love. Like each day is ample opportunity to practice. And with practice over time, you do get better. And whatever you pay attention to, one of my teachers says it this way. I love it. Wherever your attention goes, your energy flows. And so whatever you're focusing on, you're going to get better at that. So I'm choosing to focus on those things that will make me more fluxy. I like to say, moving forward. More flexibility, I think, is what we can all shoot for. I'm really glad you brought that to the forefront because it's easy to assume since you wrote a book about it, you have this figured out. There is this perfect end state of being just more like April and then we'll all thrive in constant change, which thank you so much. And I think especially if you tell all of these passionate change makers who are listening to run slower, I guarantee you we are freaking them out right now mm -hmm. because it feels like there are so many problems to be solved, so many challenges to be overcome, and there are just not enough hours in the day. And as you say in your book, you are not your to-do list. And on page 32, I love this quote, there are many kinds of growth that can only come with rest. This is something that takes a long time. And even if we think we've mastered a superpower, there's probably a new way of deploying it and honing that skill. What needs to be in place for you personally to be able to continually show up and do this work sustainably? Yeah, well, again, it's a journey and it's a practice. And I'm still, I have learned things that work work better, work well. Um, I'm also a huge fan of massive experimentation. And even though I've found things that work well, I'm constantly trying new things. And it depends on how we're thinking about this in terms of, is it with regards, I'll just use the example of book launches and just all of the demands that come with my portfolio, um, my professional portfolio. And one of the things, again, it's not rocket science, but I have discovered that if I can have, I typically try to schedule calls and engagements, things where I have to be really on 
I try to schedule those in two days each week. But I allow at least one day before and sometimes after. And days in which I don't have to, I don't want to say talk to anybody. I don't have to, I don't have to be on. I can be in creative mode. I don't necessarily have to set the alarms at different times, but I can just have that chance. Because what I find is when I do it day after day after day, you start draining, 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 draining. And when my tank is empty, I can't show up for anyone else. So that just scheduling wise is is important for me also. And again, everyone's different. For some people, I find it's music. For me, it's nature. Whenever I spend time in nature, I am replenished. So that becomes sacred time that is in my calendar at regular intervals during the week. That one action, I do that regularly and I can actually keep going. Not that it's all about keep going, 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 but I, I'm delighted to show back up for interviews, engagements, whatnot. But it's not the newfangled technologies or like there's an app for that. So much of this is about the basic essentials of human wisdom and connectedness. It's like, wow, how did we lose sight of these simple kinds of things? And for me, what I love is actually being able to talk about my book. I have to practice what I preach. Otherwise, I'm a hypocrite. So this has actually been very nourishing and replenishing for me to have to get a little bit more serious about some of my own practices and and disciplines. April, before we move on to the rapid fire round, I wanted to let all of our listeners know that they can connect with you at fluxmindset.com and on LinkedIn and your website, and that all of the links will be included in the show notes. Now, are you ready for our rapid fire round? I hope so. <laughs> Systems thinking is complicated and really, really, really important. I couldn't agree more. A systems thinker or flux practitioner, perhaps, that everyone should know about. So I don't know if this is appropriate, but I'm going to do it. We talked a lot about start with trust, and we didn't talk so much, but part of it is design from trust. And if you found any of the trust conversation interesting, you need to connect with and follow Jerry Mikulski. You can find him actually at designfromtrust.com. Now, the part I'm not sure about is he's my husband, uh, but I can honestly say that I would not have learned so much. He was a sort of flux muse, um, and he's been researching just specifically trust for a very, very, very long time. But design from trust.com and Jerry are absolutely, I, I endorse them fully. <laughs> If you trust them, all the more reason for us to trust them. Yes. Yeah. April, lastly, what is one resource that influenced you that you would recommend to other people who are dipping their toes into systems thinking? Oh, goodness. I just mentioned the wisdom of insecurity, which isn't quite on point here. Um, you know, what's interesting is I talk a lot about flux mindset. And a question I often get is, what does this have to do with like fixed and growth mindset? And I like to remind people there are distinctions. Um Just going back and reading Carol Dweck's seminal book on mindset, titled Mindset, it is a treasure trove. And so much of that relates to the foundational core of Flux. Um, that is a resource that, it's funny, it's not system change per se, but it's mindset, which factors and shapes and colors and filters through 
everything that we do, including how we think about systems, as well as how we may design and, and change them. So Mindset by Carol Dweck. I think this is brilliant because without the right mindset, I in my in my training for ecosystem builders, I always talk about the importance of mindset and what makes an ecosystem builder mindset. And I think that is a starting point of everything we do as agents of change. So thank you for bringing that home for us. April, this has been an adventurous interview. Thank you for <laughs> being here, showing up as your true self and being willing to share so many of your insights with us the listeners and the community. I recommend everybody go grab your book and become Flux Practitioners. Thank you so much. It's been a joy and a pleasure. Be sure to find out more about April's work at fluxmindset.com and connect with her on Instagram and LinkedIn. I pay my respects to the traditional custodians of the land on which I work and live, the Tuscarora, Shakori, Saponi, Okanichi, Lumbee and Eno people. I recognize their continuing connection to land, water, and community. I pay my respect to elders past, present, and emerging. This episode was produced by Yellow House Media. 